Hi, this is Kevin Purcell. I'm the pastor at High Peak Baptist Church, and you're listening to Sermons at High Peak. On Easter 2019 at High Peak Baptist Church, I shared what has traditionally been called the seven last words of Christ on the cross. So listen as I share the gospel message through the words of Jesus. You know, when a prisoner who's about to be executed uh, is come to his final day, they often have a practice where they give them famous last words. And believe it or not, sometimes these can be very entertaining. It gives you an idea of the things that are going through their minds as they're facing their final moments. I've got a couple of these. Uh, there's a man named James French. He was the last man executed in Oklahoma before they stopped doing so in 1972, and then of course later revived it. Uh, but he was serving a life sentence for murder, and while he was in prison, he killed another inmate. And so as a result of that, they convicted him and gave him the death sentence. And he said this, hey fellas, about this for a head, how about this for a headline for tomorrow's paper? French fries. There's another man on a similar note, his name was George Apple. And uh, in the 1920s, he was sentenced to death for the killing of a police officer. He also had a bit of a sense of humor. He said, well, gentlemen, you're about to see a baked apple. <laughs> kind of gruesome when you think about it. Uh, a man named Thomas Grasso was found guilty of murdering an 87-year-old woman back in 1990 by strangling her with her own Christmas lights. A year later, he did the exact same thing with an 81-year-old man, and that's when they finally found him and sentenced him to death. His last words, I did not get my SpaghettiOs, I got spaghetti, I want the press to know this. It's incredible to me the things that will go through a person's mind as they're about to face eternity. This morning I want us to think about the famous last words of Christ on the cross. We trace these through the Gospels, and we're going to do so very quickly this morning. And the first one comes from John 19, 26 to 27. His words of selflessness. Listen to this as he says it in John 19, 26 and 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. And so I want you to put your place, yourself in Jesus' place. He's being crucified, killed for the sins of the whole world. He's suffering an unimaginable death, something that none of us, if we ever had to face, uh, would probably be thinking about anything else but ourselves in that moment. But what he looks upon that, when he looks upon that crowd and he sees his mother there, his mother whom he loved so much, who brought him up and taught him in such a wonderful way, I'm uh, quite confident that it was Mary and her faithfulness that brought up Jesus, understanding and knowing what God wanted the Savior of the world to know because he had chosen to limit himself as a human being. And it says he grew in every way in stature and his parents were faithful believers. And that mother that he loved so much, his last thoughts, some of them were directed at her 
and the disciple that he loved standing there with her. And so he said in this moment, this frantic mother, probably beside herself, probably uh, pouring with tears, he tried to comfort her. He tried to comfort her. Think about that. This was after all a Jesus who had told his disciples just a little while earlier that they were to sacrifice familial relations for the kingdom of God. In Matthew 19, 29, it says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. Jesus understood the sacrifice his disciples were making. And he understood the sacrifice his mother had to make to give birth in the way that she did, to raise the Son of God, and then to see him murdered in the way that he was as an innocent man. Those were the, the words of selflessness of Christ. Now we also see the words of suffering in that same passage, John chapter 19, look at verse 28 and 29. It says, after this, when Jesus knew that everything was not finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there. And so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. Now think about that. First of all, it says he was concerned about fulfilling prophecy. He understood what his role was, his entire purpose. His purpose was to suffer for the sins of the whole world. But that statement, I thirst, as some translations put it, is just a, a small, tiny little detail into the suffering of Jesus Christ. Experts have said that uh, Jesus was very likely, because of the incredible uh, loss of fluid and, and loss of blood in his body as a result of a crucifixion and the beating that preceded it, that he probably was, uh, within moments after his crucifixion starting, he probably was already dehydrating. Now you can imagine if you've ever been even close to dehydration. Some of us who have, we understand that and the, the dryness that you feel. And he just said, I thirst. But he also knew that it was a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. But it wasn't just the statement, I thirst. It was what they gave him. You see, the hyssop had a, a special and important role in the history of Israel. See, they looked back at this time that Jesus was crucified. They looked back on the celebration of the Passover. And even right now, we're celebrating Passover. The Jewish community uh, around the world does so. Passover remembers the time when, when Jesus, or when God rather, sent Moses to the nation of Egypt to let his people go, and they came out of Egypt in a miraculous way. And as we've looked at many, many times, one of the miracles, the tenth miracle, was the death of the firstborn child of each uh, household in Egypt. And so what did Jesus, or what did God rather do? He, he warned them through Moses saying, look, if you'll sacrifice a lamb, take the blood and on a hyssop, if you'll sprinkle the doorpost with it on the top and then on the sides, then you will be protected. You will be saved. And so the hyssop was a symbol of his suffering for the protection of the whole world. And so we see his words of suffering in that passage. Thirdly, we see the words of mercy and grace. Look at Luke 23, 34. It says, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. 
Again, put yourself in Jesus' circumstance. First of all, this is a man who has never once ever committed a single sin. I can't imagine what that feels like to go maybe a whole month without committing a single sin, let alone your entire life. He was probably about the age of, oh, around 33 years old at this point, by our best estimates. That's an amazing accomplishment, but it's because he was not just human. He was also divine. He was God in human physical form. And when he came to this earth, he was born as a poor pauper, like a nothing, a nobody in the middle of nowhere. And he was brought up in an impoverished home. But when he became of age, he started to teach and he went around and taught amazing things. He taught things like uh, he who is without sin cast the first stone. He taught things like uh, uh, you call out to me and I will give you the, the water that shall give you thirst or, or calm your thirst for the whole life. The, the living water that Jesus himself is. He said to his disciples, I am the bread of life. He promised them so much. He had given so much already. And then eventually one of his own disciples, Judas, probably the closest of his disciples because Judas was not just a follower, he was family, it says. He was a cousin to Jesus. And he betrayed Jesus. Jesus was arrested. He was convicted illegally in a sham trial in a way that disobeyed the law. Eventually he was beaten brutally. He was spit upon. He was mocked and humiliated. He hung on a cross for hours in great agony and suffering, all never ever deserving any of it. And yet in that moment, just like he was concerned for his mother and the disciple whom he loved and said, a woman behold your son and a brother behold your mother, he thought about the people doing it to him. Those who were actually responsible for putting him in that cross. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't have any clue what they're doing. That's the way I <laughs> say it in modern day vernacular. We don't understand what we're doing. Even when we sin, knowing sin is wrong, we still don't fully put into our brains and, and understand and in that moment think about that every sin that we commit is another hammer of a nail into the cross that hung Jesus for our sins. And yet in his mercy and grace, he gave it to us. Romans 5, 8 says so. It says, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Shannon Etheridge is a 16 or was a 16 year old girl and she experienced maybe one of the greatest acts of forgiveness uh, outside of Jesus himself. And that love changed her life forever, she said later on. She was driving to school and uh, as young 16 year old drivers often do, wasn't fully in control that morning. She came upon a bicyclist named Marjorie Jarsfar. And unfortunately, riding out on a country road, she struck her at a high speed and Marjorie died instantly. Shannon Etheridge was found to be guilty because she was negligent. She wasn't doing everything properly. 
And while she sat in the courtroom with an intense level of guilt, knowing that she had taken the life of this woman who was married and had children of her own, she figured this is the end of my life. She got very, very suicidal and the guards had to keep watch over her while she was in jail almost constantly. She never actually tried to kill herself though. And that change in her heart that took her from feeling that intense guilt and suicidal feelings to now having a feeling that she had a life was for one reason. Because of grace. You see, Gary Jarsfard, Gary was uh, Marjorie's husband. He came to the courthouse that day when she was uh, to be brought up on charges. And he asked for one thing. He asked for the authorities to drop all charges. And that he wanted her to go free. Because he knew it was an accident. It was a mistake that she never intended. And he just said one thing. He said to her... Later on, she wrote in her book, the young girl, she said that he told her, you can't let this ruin your life. God wants to strengthen you through this. In fact, I'm passing Marjorie's legacy on to you. And he went on to tell her, now it's your turn to live the life that she could have lived. Serving the Lord. Every step you've got. Etheridge wrote in her best-selling book, Completely His, Loving Jesus Without Limits, that that moment put her on a path towards forgiveness. First of all, from her family, and second of all, from her Savior. And she loved Jesus Christ, got on a road to salvation, and now serves the Lord as best she can, and has become a popular author and speaker at women's conferences and around the world. And Jesus wants the same for all of you. You see, He says to you, you don't know what you're doing in your sin, but Father, forgive them. And in his words of grace and mercy, he wants you then to experience the next words, the words of salvation. Look at Luke 23, verse 39 to 43. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we are getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your salvation, into your kingdom. And he, meaning Jesus, said to him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Put yourself now in the spot of those two criminals. Which one would you likely have been? One of them was ha uh, casting insults at Jesus, making fun of him, just like the other crowd members were. But the one that Jesus showed love to in that instance and showed forgiveness to rather, he, showed, he loved them both I'm sure, but showed forgiveness to was the man who spoke up for him and said, don't you realize we are as guilty or even more so than him? We're here just like he is dying, but we deserve our fate. He doesn't. And then he turned to Jesus and said, Father, will you remember me? And I want you to know something. I believe Jesus remembered every one of us. I believe that in his divinity, he was able to remember every one of us as he hung there on the cross. 
I love a quote that was posted on Facebook this week of Philip Yancey. I believe, Will, it was you that I saw posted there. He was talking about the thief and said he forgave the, the thief on the, Jesus forgave the thief on the cross who was uh, converted out of pure death and, and taken out of hell. That man had never studied a Bible, had never attended a church, made amends for all, or never had made amends for any of his sins. But Jesus simply said, or he simply said to Jesus, remember me. In a moment of clarity, he understood that Jesus was the one who could save him. And in those words of salvation, Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. It was another shocking reminder of the grace that does not demand on, here's what Yancey said, it was another shocking reminder that grace does not demand on what we have done for God, on rather what God has done for us. Words of grace. But in that moment, he also experienced some terrible words, words of abandonment. Over in Mark chapter 15, verse 34 through 36, it says, And at three, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, See, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, and offered him a drink, and said, Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. When I think about that, it's amazing to me, the feelings of utter abandonment. There was a Seattle Times article that was written by a man named Mark Horowitz. He's a photographer and an artist, and he uh, did a photo shoot for Crate and Barrel magazine. And in that photo shoot, uh, he had just happened to have his cell phone number on a whiteboard in the background as the photographer from Crate and Barrel came and took his photo. And as it was there, and people put it together with him, something interesting happened when the Crate and Barrel magazine for that month came out. He started getting phone calls. <laughs> people, just ordinary people, just strangers started calling him on the phone. And at first he found it a bit annoying, as you know, some of us might. You know, your cell phone, you've got it with you all the time, and then it starts ringing off the hook. But then he saw it as an opportunity. He was an artist after all. So he began having discussions with these people and decided he would uh, ask them, can I come and meet you and take your picture? And that's what he did. He started scheduling meetings, some for dinner. He went to Georgia where he shared what the person who invited him called a mean lasagna. Uh, he shared some coffee with a person in Madison, Wisconsin. He went to a family's home in Maryland where he shared a, a Shabbat, a good Sabbath dinner. All of these were complete strangers. But all of them, he said, were reaching out to anybody because of loneliness. He said a lot of people are lonely and they just want to talk to somebody, to reach out and connect with somebody. You know, there's a lot of people out there who feel that loneliness. But I want you to understand, our Savior felt that abandonment on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus say that? 
Would Jesus, would, would Jesus really believe God had forsaken him? Understand this, that, that he had taken upon the sins of all the world. I can't imagine that. I know the guilt that I feel when I just commit one. Imagine having all the sins of all the world for all time. How many sins is that? There are uh, seven plus billion people in the world today. How many have each of them committed? And then add that, all the people who have gone before and then uh, whoever knows how long will continue to walk the face of these, this earth as human beings. Add all of those in. What an intense, amazing feeling of guilt. And also in that moment, this Jesus who is created, not created rather, I misspoke, who exists in harmony, in community with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the three of them together as one. But in that moment, in some miraculous way that we can't fully understand, God separated himself from the sins of the world. That was the punishment. As horrific and terrible as the cross was, other people had been crucified in Roman times. As horrific as that crucifixion was, we've seen just in our time the amazing murder of, of people who didn't deserve to die the way they died through beheadings and bombings and horrible ways. But what Jesus felt in that moment was the separation from his father because of the sins that I committed. And sins that, dare I say, I unfortunately probably still haven't yet. But there's good news. Because Jesus, I don't think, just said that to cry out in his agony and sorrow. Because Jesus also cried out the words of a psalm when he said those words. Psalm chapter 22 begins with that same phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then it ends in this way. It says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you for kingships belong to the Lord. He rules the nations. You see, Jesus knew that this wasn't the end. That his abandonment from the Father was a temporary thing that would be exchanged for community with the Father. But even more so beautiful and more so amazing is he knew that that abandonment would be replaced with community for all eternity. With us. With me. Who didn't deserve any of it. He died in that moment and he was abandoned by his Father because he felt the torment of my sin. And in his grace and mercy and love, he remembered me. And then he finished it. And we get to the words of completion. When he cried out, I thirst, they gave him vinegar to drink. And then in John 19.30, it says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up the spirit. I imagine that this way. I imagine that Jesus, with all of the energy he has left, wanting to pronounce a completion to this plan that God had set in motion before he even created the world in, in the beginning of time. I love there's a scene in a Max Lucado book where Jesus and, and God are, are there together with the Holy Spirit looking on what will become. And, and they're all looking over the history of redemption of what will happen at each moment and each turn from the beginning when man sins 
to the sacrifices that would need to be made to teach them that a blood sacrifice was needed for redemption to finally Jesus coming into this world. And before he died, he went to the garden and cried, if anything else can be done, my father, let this cup pass for me, but not my will, but thine be done, O Lord. And so he went to the cross for each one of us. And in this moment, he finally cried out, probably with very little energy left, as best he could, one Aramaic word, die," which means it is finished. I'm sure it sounded like an absolute ghostly sound as life went out from his body in that moment. But he did it for you and for me. It is finished. But he said one more thing. These are words of confidence. Luke 23, verse 44 through 46. It says, it was now about noon and the darkness had come over the whole land until three because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle and we know that is because in the death of Jesus, the doorway to hope and to heaven was opened. And we now have an entrance into the Holy of Holies. Something that had been sealed off and cut off from humanity. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And saying this, he breathed his last. Now, I don't know whether that was the last word or to Tetelestai was the last word, but I know they were together. And in that moment, he cried words of confidence. He trusted himself to the Lord. He said, I am yours and in your hands. I want you to know something. I'm not a great swimmer. I like to go to the water. I like to get in the water, but I'm just not good at floating in the water. And so I remember one summer, I was a summer missionary in Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, as I was in Madison, we went out to a home out on the lake of one of the neighbors or one of the members of the church I was assigned to. And they had something I had never seen before. It was a double decker pier. And it's because the, the land was so steep going down into it. You could go to the bottom one and, you know, take some boats out or swim off of it. But what all the kids wanted to do, and apparently they had been here before, is they always wanted to go to the top one where they would run out and dive into the lake, Lake Mendota in uh, Madison. And apparently it's a fairly deep lake because everybody was diving in head first and they weren't cracking their heads on the bottom or breaking their necks. Like I was scared to death what happened to me. So anyway, we went out there and I stood up there looking and watching and I thought, ain't gonna do that, that's for sure. <laughs> and all the kids were doing it and they were all kind of getting on me. Come on, come on, Kevin, you can do it too. You know, my summer mission partners, the two of them had jumped off and the youth director of the church had jumped off and all the kids had jumped off. And I looked around and realized the only people weren't jumping off, but this 18 year old kid at the time and all the old people, you know, who were gray headed and, you know, probably shouldn't be jumping off. And it kind of, my pride got the worst of me. And I was like, okay, I don't swim too good. And so one of the people who owned the house said, come here, come here. And he gave me a life preserver. Some of the kids had been wearing them too. And I thought, well, maybe I can do that. I said, you assure me this thing's gonna be okay, right? Oh yeah, yeah, we do it all the time. So I put on that life preserver and I jumped. And I didn't die, because I'm still here, right? And trust me, there was no amazing resurrection that day. I survived. 
And it was because I put my trust in something. Something that you know what? Save me that day. But I want you to know something. There's something far greater that will save you today. Something far more wonderful that you can put your trust in. It's not a something at all. It's a someone. And just like Jesus who said, into your hands I commit my spirit, you can do the same thing today. Into your hands, Jesus, I commit my spirit. And it's as simple as this. Dear Lord Jesus, please forgive me for my sins. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you had to die on a cross for me. Will you forgive me? I promise if you'll do that, I'll do my very best to live for you all the rest of my life. And you know what he promises he'll say? First John 1 9 says, he says, yes, forgiven. Hi, I'm Dr. Kevin Purcell. You've been listening to sermons at High Peak. We hope that you are benefiting from listening to these sermons. If you ever need to get in contact with me, feel free to do so at my email address, which is pastor at highpeakchurch.com. You can also find us at highpeakchurch.com as well as on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter using High Peak Church.